Hello and welcome to the Stacked Podcast, brought to you by Cognify, the recruitment partner for modern data teams, hosted by me, Harry Gollop. Stacked with incredible content from the most influential and successful data teams, interviewing industry experts who share their invaluable journeys, groundbreaking projects, and most importantly, their key learnings. So get ready to join us as we uncover the dynamic world of modern data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Stacked Data Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Thomas, the co-founder and CEO of Tasman Analytics. Tasman is one of the UK's leading modern data consultancies, focusing on bootstrapping early-stage data teams with an emphasis on business value. Thomas shares some excellent insights on how to ensure you and your data team are driving a positive ROI and that critical business value. We cover areas like how to communicate business insights in the right way, strategies to avoid being seen as a cost center, and the biggest pitfalls teams usually fall down. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the pod. Really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me today. How are you doing? It's my pleasure to be here, Harry. I'm, I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Uh, it, it's, it's busy as always, but I, I like taking a bit of time to talk about the wider themes in the industry as well. So looking forward to this chat and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, no, no worries at all. I know you've been quite active across LinkedIn talking about the ROI of, of data. And, yeah, and that's, I'm, I think... I'm, I'm that annoying guy and talking about ROI all the time, I'm afraid. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think it's important, right, in the day in, in, that we're living in and the year we've had. Yeah, yeah, I think we see a lot of teams now really thinking through how they can not just deliver value, because obviously most data teams deliver a tremendous amount of value in the industry here, but also how to narrate that value, how to make sure that this is efficient and relevant as possible. It's really exciting. I think if, if maybe the last couple of years we focus a lot on the technology and the stack, I think we definitely start to move into the business and ROI side of the equation now, Harry. Yeah, well, the stack's obviously exploded the last couple of years, and it's easy to get caught up in the, the technology aspects. Uh, and yeah, the business takes a, a back step. But I think, yeah, now, and the conversations that I've had this year is that was a, a big key point. You know, let's make sure that what we're doing is, is answering the business questions. So that's what we're going to talk about today, Thomas. But I suppose, first off, for the audience, it'd be great if you could give a brief introduction to yourself, your background, and who you are. Absolutely. No, it's my pleasure to be here. So my name is Thomas. I'm CEO and co-founder of an expert-led agency in data analytics. Uh, we're called Tasman. We're about 25 people spread across London, the Netherlands, and Sweden. So a nicely Northwestern European setup. We uh, specialize in bootstrapping analytics capabilities for fast-growing companies. So that means that we come in and we don't just set up infrastructure because that's the stack. That's part of the stack that we'll talk about for sure. But we also make sure that insights are being generated, that we know what drives the needle for our clients, for the companies we work with. And we actually also help them hire and onboard their internal data team because we think that data is uh, so important that it shouldn't be outsourced to consultancy forever. So we're very, uh, very keen to come in, set everything up, make sure it's all working, and then hand over to the internal team. That's what we do. I've been doing that now for about six years. I've been doing that for about 50, 55 clients all very much in the startup and scale-up ecosystem. And if they're not a startup or scale-up themselves, then they're very much like to think of themselves as, as being in that space. It's been an uh, exhilarating ride. There's, of course, plenty of data consultancies and data work out there, but we like to think that we have uh, 
a nice differentiation when it comes to trying to hand over as quickly as possible what we do. Yeah, uh, it's brilliant. I've obviously known of Tasman for, for quite some time and I think it is a, a truly sort of unique approach and yeah, one that, that is valuable for your clients. Internal data knowledge is you know the key to, to long-term success. Oh, it's critical, absolutely, yeah. Look, and, and my, my own background is uh, I'm a physicist by training and have been in the, the London data eco- ecosystem now since uh, mid-2013. So a few months ago, I uh, realized that I've been working in this space for 10 years, but all the way back from when data science was still the term that uh, was applied to every single data professional out there. If you remember that, it's, it's been quite a ride here. It's been quite a ride. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, thanks for that intro, Thomas. So I suppose let's dive into to uncovering some of the points. So as we've already mentioned, you know, this year, particularly in data and the wider economic sort of situation, there's been a, a huge emphasis on costs. And I think many data teams still are perceived as a cost center in certain areas of the business. So how do you evaluate if you are a cost center or if you're a, a value adder? That's, uh, I think, something that business leaders and data leaders would really like to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to, I think, accept as well that good data professionals are not cheap. Right? We cost quite a bit of money and it's therefore key to sort of understand what the return on that investment is, which is why we're talking about ROI all the time. I think there's probably three or four themes in why it's easy for a data team or an analytics team to be considered a cost center rather than a profit center. I think a few of them are, I think, intrinsic to the work that we do as data teams. And then maybe a few of them are within our control to help fix, I think, by just running the teams in slightly different ways. So the intrinsic reasons, I think, are that Certainly, if you start a data team from scratch, if you move away from end-to-end tools like Google Analytics or Amplitude, start centralizing your data for the first time, it's quite a bit of setup work that needs to be done. So that's not just setup work in terms of actual code that needs to be written, but it's also setup work in getting quite expensive SaaS licenses in setting up a stack that that doesn't come for free either. And so the initial investment over the immediate returns, that's a balance that might feel like it doesn't really create that much business value straight away. So that, that's probably a reason one. Sometimes for companies to want to move very quickly, that it can overshadow the longer term benefits, right? So I think the, if the immediate tangible results are not clear, but you've signed a 40k BI deal and you've signed a 30k data warehouse credits deal and you've signed a 20k ETL tool deal, all of a sudden you're sort of coming up from behind when it comes to actually trying to prove the value of all of that. So that's one. I think second intrinsic reason is that data is a complicated subject. At its best, it is existential to the business. At its best, it informs every single decision and makes a business succeed because it can rapidly identify where room for growth is or where efforts are not working, where efforts are working. But the intricacies of data analysis, they're quite hard to grasp. And if you work with stakeholders outside of the immediate technical field, and and most data teams will report one way or the other into the business side of the business rather than the technical side, we can talk about that as well because I'm a big proponent of data teams being seen as a business role. If you report to a non-technical stakeholder, if you don't communicate the impact of your insights extremely effectively, it will take a while for the stakeholder to understand the actual impact and investment, return on investment of what you're doing. I think the, the third one is that even if you are doing all of those things right, the, you've set up the stack, you're running along nicely, very efficiently with a team of two or three people, often the real benefits of a proficient team, which are things like improved decision-making, refined operational efficiency, predictive insights, identification of churn, growth engine, all of those different things, 
that's an impact that only materializes over time. The inside might be there quite quickly, but the way that an insight actually moves the bottom line of the business you work in, well, even in rapidly paced startups, it can easily take months. And in bigger businesses, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest here, sometimes it takes years for that insight to, to pay off. So yeah, as a grown company, you might be tempted to focus on a bit more of the short-term gains and overlook those as strategic or long-term plays. So I think that those are three sort of intrinsic reasons why we're sort of set up to be seen as a cost center if we don't do our job properly, Harry. Yeah, I think they're, they're key points and you know the cost from the get-go is so great that it naturally was, is always going to take time for that to pay dividends. So so as an engineering team, by the way, I will probably add, as in, I think the trouble is that engineering teams are often seen as core to the product offering of a startup, whether it's a mobile app or an e-commerce platform or a, an advertising service. The uh, software engineering team, you, you don't have product if you don't have software engineers. And so that's factored into the, how shall I say, company growth investment budget from the very start versus this data team, you might be tempted to think that you can get by quite long without a clear investment there. So the concerns are often secondary, but in my opinion, it should probably be primary and sitting alongside the engineers, allowing entrepreneurs, startup founders to think about, well, look, I need to build a product, but then I also need to make sure it fits in the market, has great insights and a, and a growth plan. And for that, I need data. Therefore, I need to invest in data upfront as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a key part. Data seems to still be you know, a secondary thought rather than a primary thought. And obviously, that's where the growth comes from. Indeed. So, Thomas, how do you actually drive ROI then in analytics? Uh, an organization has spent however much on their stack. And yeah, how are you going to make back on three on a K straight away? Yeah. No. <laughs> Look, this is not simple. And I think that it's also important to say that this is something that you can't really learn in any formal environment necessarily, right? This comes with experience, with the fact that we've done this for so many clients, but also with me starting my career, building out the data team in a company, learning all of the hard lessons from scratch. So if you're not doing any of the things that I've mentioned here, just give them a thought, but don't feel that bad about it either, right? So I think there's a couple of things you can do in your team to sidestep the cost center drivers, so to speak, a little bit. And communicate about them clearly. But and the things you can do all come down, I think, to three main principles. One is communication. You're not going to escape the fact that in any company, whether it's a small, fast-growing startup or a big technology player or even a charity organization, so to speak, if you are not able to succinctly and precisely communicate value of what you do as a data person, you're going to be I think, starting from behind in defending the value of the team. So communication is key, absolute key. You're not just a technical worker. You are integral to the value of the business, and you need to be able to communicate that. Second, I think, is your ability to understand the business well enough so that you can prioritize which of the, if you do your job well, hundreds of requests that the stakeholders send you, which of those to prioritize, right? So if you end up in a sort of classic fast-growing business that raises a seed round, raises a series A round, hires a data team, raises a B round, often what I see is data teams who end up with something that resembles a bit of a ticketing system, right? So a, a queue of work that's requested by the stakeholders, whether that's a product manager, a performance, a marketing performance manager, whether that's the CEO on the board report, and you're going to start to prioritize those requests, not based on their 
intrinsic value, but based on who has the loudest voice, so to speak. <laughs> and of course, you're going to prioritize the board report for the CEO because that's what your job in, in many ways depends on. That's typically when it becomes quite hard to defend the value of the data team because at that point, you are not prioritizing the work based on how much you can move the needle on the business. You are not thinking through what can be done to communicate clearly about that value. You're just thinking through how can I get this piece of tactical work out of the door as quickly as possible and move on to the next one. And that typically burns data teams out. Yeah, I think just a few other things that, that I think about in terms of uh, how do you drive the ROI, cross-functional collaboration, ma- make sure you understand what the other teams in the business are doing, not just on the business side, but also on the technical side. You want to almost operate a bit as an internal consultant, well, which is, of course, rich coming from us being actual external consultants, but it is, it is an important skill set to work in a team talk to people, understand the requirements, try to dig deeper than just the plain request that, that they've made, try to understand what they're trying to achieve, how they want to achieve it, and how you can help them achieve those goals. You probably in the data team know the data better than they do. So if they come to you and say, I want a graph with these dimensions and this measure, gently push back, we always suggest, and sort of say, well, is, is this kind of achieving the outcome that you want? How can we help you understand the drivers of that outcome that you want? Where what, what buttons can you push in, say, app design in order to get that higher final completion rate? And let's define some tracking around that that we can set up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That sort of two-way conversation is really important. I'd also say probably the last thing is really prioritize the quick wins, particularly in fast-growing businesses. The, the sort of prioritization matrix we tend to be a big fan of is the urgent versus important matrix, right? So classify all of the tasks in front of you. Uh, according to that, I think they call it an Eisenhower decision matrix. What is urgent and important? What is important but not urgent? What's not important but urgent? And what is non-urgent, non-important? And I think the, the advice is to immediately get the urgent and important stuff done, delegate the stuff that is urgent and not important, plan the stuff that's, that's important but not, not urgent, and just remove the non-urgent, non-important stuff from the do list altogether, <laughs> even if it means <laughs> disappointing that poor product manager who really needed the insight on this particular button click. I think that's brilliant. You touched upon some really interesting points. And I think, again, it comes back to that key point of communication. That communication stops you from being a bottleneck and enables that, that further sort of enablement of what you're doing. I think the ticketing system is obviously great, you do need to have something in, uh, in where you know people can ask for requests, but when you become just a you know a support function, is where you're not going to be driving value. And, and as you said there, you know you need to be communicating with your stakeholders to to make sure that you're getting the best for them, rather than just doing what they tell you. Because as you said, you probably got better knowledge of the data. They might have better knowledge of the domain. If you put that together, that's when yeah. You're going to be really powerful. Yeah, and, and think about ticketing systems, right? It's in, it's in, I mean, with, with the risk of making too big of a point on it, it's a symptom more than a cause, I think. But no one really sees, for instance, a customer support team as a profit center. They see it as a cost center that they have to have in order to have bare functionality of, of the business. You, as a data team, you do not want to be seen in the same vein as the customer support function. So look at everything that defines that, so to speak, and then, then make sure that as a data team, you uh, you learn from that. Right? You don't do the ticketing system. Don't see it as a commoditizable job that, that that is a sort of race to the bottom and certainly don't see it yourself as a cost center either. Make sure that you always have in mind what the value is that you produce for the business. 
that value point is so important. And obviously that's what leadership should be doing is making sure that you're working on impactful projects. But also if you notice that yourself, you know, take responsibility and take it to the team or to the business. That's a really important point to to underline that I think what we also see, if I think about all the different ways that data teams fill, I think the sort of reluctance to take their own ownership about what they want to be doing and rely on product managers, C-level executives to define the priority in a backlog for them. That sort of is a start of, I think, a bit of a slippery slope that ends with the data team not really caring about what business actually wants to achieve, not really a bit lost within a forest of OKRs and tickets and so on and what they want to prioritize and not really having the agency to step up and do something about it. Because it goes two ways. If a data team is not stepping up to define the business value, then of course, senior leadership will step in and define the business value for them. But if the senior leadership is not doing that properly, then, then yeah, you get this sort of vicious circle of frustrating, frustrated data teams, uh, long, long, long uh, backlogs of work. Stakeholders are unhappy because it takes long to, to get anything done. And importantly, as a data team, you need to be able to take a step back and think beyond all the different requests and think about, okay, do we need to now spend, say, a couple of weeks to restructure the data model because we might have run the same data model for a few years without updating it for new features or new app components and so on and so on. If, you, if you're running in a red race request type system, you never have the time to do that. And that, that is typically also a big driver for frustration and failure, alas. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Take ownership of your own work and don't let that be a disconnect. And go sell it. Yeah, absolutely. You are in a business role. You're supposed to communicate and, uh, and sell it. So so maybe maybe that's a piece of advice that we can give together, Harry, to start communicating the value of your, of your projects and don't hesitate to ask whether you can present an analysis you've done at the All Hands meeting. Don't hesitate to ask, hey, can I tell, for instance, a, a one of the many meetups that are organized in London, Amsterdam, Edinburgh, Stockholm, and so on and so on. Ask if you can present there because the best meetups or the best presentations I always enjoy the most are presentations of impactful. Exactly, very impactful presentations of analysts who who or analytics engineers or data engineers who say, Hey, look, we had this problem here at this company where I'm working and this is the way we solved it. And that's all there is to it. And I mean it, it raises your profile in the uh, the ecosystem as well. And it teaches you how to communicate about the work that you do outside of your immediate technical team. Yeah, I've said it many times before. You you have to be a salesperson within data. Reaching you know, you to the choir. Yeah. Don't oversell either, right? That's the other problem. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> so look, you've obviously mentioned a, a few areas where people typically go wrong, but you know, how else can companies and individuals identify sort of where they're going wrong in this chase for being a, a driver of ROI? Yeah, yeah. I think mm, I think there's symptoms and root causes, if I if I can split them in there. So I think the symptoms are very much your executive team, your leadership is unhappy, as in they keep asking you for reports and you sort of feel the frustration of them not really sort of seeing the amount of output from the data team that, that, that they want. And that's then, a, I think the cause for that is, is the ticketing system that, that doesn't prioritize the stuff that leadership actually cares about. Other sign to be wary of is creeping inaccuracies in, in reporting, right? As in, that's a big driver for trust in data. And we haven't really talked about trust. But as a data team, you might be the best performing data team in the country in terms of beautiful data models, uh, fantastic business relevant reporting that you build. You've nailed business value communication. You've absolutely smacked it out of the park when it comes to 
building a beautiful prioritization framework so you never spend any minute on work that's just not that useful to business. If your stakeholders don't trust the output that you produce, because at one point you published a lifetime value report with a 10% error in there, right? then all of that is for nothing. So, so building this sort of right set of expectations within your teams that data is messy, you can guarantee accuracy of data. There are ways to do that. It takes time and energy to do that. Sometimes you might not, you might opt not to go for 100% accuracy, but for 80 or 90% accuracy instead. Retention rates per cohort, you might not need 100% accuracy there. You might just need the direction, so to speak. Lifetime value, yeah, you kind of want 100% accuracy or as close to 100% accuracy as, as possible there. If you don't, if you find yourself in discussions about why does it take so long to build these reports? Why why are all the reports uh, inaccurate or why is there no, no trust in data? And why is my marketing team seeing different reports than my than my sales team or my product team? Then I think at that point you find yourself in a position where the, the return on investment is clearly not large enough. What companies then tend to do is they tend to double down almost and they tend to add new data team members into the mix. So for instance, you might have a team of three, a data engineer, analytics engineer, and a data analyst. And in a lot of grown companies with funding, the response to an underperforming data team, if you want to call it like that, because we're talking about perception here rather than actual, right, is to just add more people to the mix. But as we all know from engineering lessons, adding people to the mix of, of an already delayed project is going to make it even later, right? As in, it's again, you, you increase the amount of communication, it takes time to onboard someone. And the problem is not the staffing, the problem is how you actually communicate about it and how you build the trust and how you prioritize the ED request. So if you find yourself in those type of discussions, then as chances are high that your return on investment is not being appreciated for what it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, trust is such a huge thing. It's very easy to lose and much harder to, to win. And I think it then reverts back to communication, that understanding of you know, the, the, as you said, the percentage of reliability on this area, I don't think you need to have everything, you know, with 100% data quality and, and governance, because yep. that would take way too much time. But it's again, it's back to sort of that prioritization of what do we need. And, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, I'll give an example of that sort of triaging of data quality, right? Because that's an important bit there in, if, if I think about the lessons that you learn growing a data team, solving, again, running these kind of projects for quite a few of these companies for the last couple of years, you can't get to 100% accuracy in every data point. Select where you need to 100% accuracy and then go from there. Tracking plans, for instance. If you start to deploy event tracking on your mobile app or your website, which is typically a step most data teams take from the moment that they start to centralize data into a data warehouse, they realize that they, the sort of aggregate statistics about user journeys and retention are no longer sufficient. You want to have a, a lattice of actual event data coming in from the mobile apps and the website into the data warehouse in a raw way to then model yourself. We see data teams, if they do it for the first time, typically make a couple of mistakes there. They typically start to track every single possible event in the app and the mobile website, generating hundreds if not thousands of events per, per session. It's way too much. You can't guarantee accuracy on, all, on the data modeling there for all of it. Don't do that. Ident think clearly about what you want to do with the event analytics and then define events into three tiers. Tier one are events that are directly mission critical or revenue generating. So a conversion event, a registration event. If it's really critical in an app that you invite your partner, for instance, you, you track that as a tier one event. And you make sure that those events are gold plated 
highly QA'd, properly tested. You run regression unit tests on, on, on them every time that you deploy a new version of the analytics tracking toolbox, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You then have your tier two events, which are mission critical supporting, right? So sign up funnel completion, because that's a necessary event to, to hit before registration would be a tier two event. Looking at the sales page before you make the conversion decision, that's a tier two event as well. You still want to make sure that those are accurate, but because they don't feed into direct aggregations for revenue or for mission critical numbers like conversions, you can get by with a bit more of an error rate there. You can err towards making sure you capture all the data there rather than err towards making it as accurate as possible. And that's where I would, for instance, look at final completion rates. Plus or minus 1% doesn't really matter too much there. So still get it as accurate as you can, but it, it doesn't have the same pressure. And then everything in Tier 3 is UX events, screen views, page views, uh, link clicks if you want to track those, deprioritize those because you have not really seen that much analysis that properly uses Tier 3 events in this triage matrix. And if you do need them, you just need to roll kind of relatively directional data set rather than all the full details there. So it's it's one way of, of doing it properly and, and understanding how data quality links straight to what you actually want to do with the data set. And that links back to what is the what is the actual business value that you want to create with all of this. I think it's it's partly a problem by the cloud vendors. There's uh it seems to be such an appetite for every, you know, to store as much data as possible. And I think what you're saying there is my sort of key takeaway is identify the data assets which hold value yeah. because not all of them do. You know, data is, is said to be the new oil, but oil is always valuable at every sort of stage, whereas data you can have a lot of data that is just junk. The amount of <laughs> junk data that's generated, it's, it's exhilarating right now. It, it, it's a really important point. There, it's very easy to create a lot of data. Modern data stack in particular has made this even easier than it already was, right? It's still a really bad idea to just track everything. And I'm not even talking about any legal or privacy concerns that, that you should quite, right, quite rightly so look at as well. If you track every single user journey event, for instance, just bringing up the example of event tracking again, you will have a huge amount of work modeling that data. Because if you haven't really thought through what event do I need for what type of business question and answer, you're going to have to do all of that exploratory work in your data model or reporting phase. And that takes a huge amount of time. Whereas if you've done the work up front to think, well, okay, look, I need to have a lifetime value per customer report that I can segment by, say, device type and by cohort, right? At that point, you realize you only need three events for that. You need to know what the revenue number is, so so you, you can get a lifetime value number out. Or it's a bit more complex, of course, but let, let, let's just assume transactional value. You need to know when the, when the user installed the app or registered or signed up to the e-commerce uh, platform. And you need to know what device to run if you want to sort of split it by Android versus iOS or split it by, by web versus mobile. That's all you need. So... Go implement those two or three events straight away, so to speak, so you can build this report and boom, you've created your business value. You have something there. You don't have a few thousand events you need to weed through in order to make the analysis. It goes quite, quite quickly from there. If you keep doing that, there is a risk of, of course, designing a very organic event base where all of a sudden you find yourself having 10 different conversion events because you've done this 10 times, so to speak. But there are ways around it as well, around structuring your tracking plans, making sure that you keep them in a central place like uh, Avo or just a Google Sheet if that if that uh, works for you. But at all stages, know exactly what you're going to do with the events. Don't let them in a scenario where you've essentially just engineered 
all logging events that the engineering team has built into the to, to the app to be sent to your segment or Firebase or Rutherstack instance as well. That's the bad position to be in. Definitely do not want to, to be there. So Thomas, this podcast is obviously all about, I suppose, learning from mistakes and helping others with success. So mm. I suppose on that, the, the data leaders and people aspiring to become data leaders, what's your advice for a clear strategy to make sure that your team is driving a, a good ROI on, on data? Yeah. So if you make kind of kind of mistakes, right, it's not the end of the world either, right? But the, these are just a sort of three big learnings that we found are, well, to, to put it in a slightly uh, uh, ambitious way, to to guarantee that at the very least you circumvent most of the pitfalls. So first of all, make sure that you select your stack as carefully as possible. There's a huge amount of tools out there. It's very tempting to pick up, say, a audited event pipeline because it looks shiny and, and you can see why it exists and you can see all the technical reasons why it would be fantastic to have a central event repository straight away to have a full audited data pipeline all the way from the app all the way to the data warehouse. If you're a serious company, you just don't need that at this point. Go and plug in Firebase or the Rudderstack starter plan or something along those lines that might not have all the bells and whistles, but gets the job done. Other stack choices are around things like data observability, self-service reporting, and so on. Always see those as a function of what you actually need to deliver on a day-to-day basis. We Just a simple example, we absolutely love Looker. It's still a tool that we deploy in most of our clients, one way or the other. We don't deploy Looker in the first weeks or even months of an engagement for a small growing company because they just don't need it at that point. And if you think back through the reasons why data teams are seen as cost centers, that massive upfront investment in, in the tech stack is one of them. So if you reduce that, then, then they kind of only make stack decisions that have a very clear, this is the value that we're going to generate for the business by having this. That, that, that's very good. I think it's also easier these days than it used to be. A modern data stack ecosystem has produced quite a wide array of different options at every stage in, this, in the stack, whether that's event ingestion or ETL or warehousing or data modeling or visualization. So you have some more options there, even including a whole bunch of very good open source options that you can start selecting. So that's all about the stack. So avoid mistakes of over-optimizing your stack before you know what you're going to do with it. Second mistake is data modeling. Data modeling is a critically under-illuminated part of a data team set of responsibilities. At the end of the day, it might very it might be easy to see data as or you see a data team as getting data from the apps and the backend and then third-party services and then quickly building reports on top of it. But of course, there needs to be a data model in the middle to centralize the data and make sure it's scalable. What typically happens is what we call query-driven development, right? where a data team is so focused on getting the first set of reports to the stakeholder teams that they're going to write a query that just grabs a bit of the raw data, joins it in the data set, maybe with one or two dimension tables attached to it, services it in mode or Tableau or Power BI and produces reports straight away. Now, you can do that because it very quickly produces value, right? But if you're not careful, all of a sudden you find yourself after six to 12 months seeing a very organically grown data model that's essentially a collection of loose SQL scripts where there's no design intention, there's no separation of concern, there's no understanding of how the different source data 
join together to build a full view of the customer or a full view of the financial transactions or a full view of the conversion dynamics. Instead, you get a very organically grown messy data model that no one really understands anymore. And that's when you generate inaccuracies, different reporting depending on what, what dashboard you query. That's where you lose trust in data as well. That's where it becomes very frustrating and hard to produce even quick reports because you need to weed through all of these queries in order to understand which one is the right one for this particular report from uh, that you need to build for the product marketing team. So instead, think through your data modeling upfront. And for that, you have a few different tools. You can follow Kimball type design patterns where you find a lot of tutorials online about how to build a proper app data model, for instance. We are big fans ourselves of Inman type modeling, which is a domain entity modeling method where you model the business in your data model, you have, rather than have a set of fact and dimension tables, you have one table describing a user that might be composed of different data sources. You might have one table uh, describing a uh, conversion event. You might have one table describing a subscription state. And the main layer, and the main model sort of designs and, and defines how those tables join together. There's reasons why that's a very powerful way of doing it. What matters is not what topology you choose or what architecture you choose what matters is that you choose an architecture before you start building that's condition number two do that and you'll be very quick in the future to deliver reports to deliver your insights do deep analysis and focus your time on analysis rather than just pure dashboarding third component is the sort of pitfall or warning i'd give or tip i'd give is be very careful with self-service so you know that you've got to build reports, of course, that realize the business value. We talked about that. You know that you can't always take your business stakeholder at face value. Sometimes you need to push back a bit on their requirements. But offloading the complexity of report building to them, as has been quite popular over the last couple of years, a lot of tools have been out there promising a self-serve world, often is not the answer either. Instead, offer curated environments for your stakeholders so that they can join they, they can look at for instance a small looker explorer or a small data set in sigma or a relatively small set of, of dashboards produced in a tool like metabase or holistics where they can edit filters where they can look at maybe a few different dimensions and one or two measures build your own reporting on there but not go outside of the bounds that you clearly defined for them the guardrails that you set up for them that's the level where i think data teams add the most value they produce those Small explorer sets, so the small data cubes almost, if you wanted, in, in the, the, the old world, which are five, six different dimensions, maybe only one time dimension, one or two measures, serve that to the business end user. They'll be able to always build the exact reporting that they want because they can bring in a pivot field from the dimensions. They can run a table calculation on the measures and so on and so on, but you will not be lost in the maze that you might get if you just serve a big explorer in Looker or a big data set in Sigma, or a big data set in, uh, in, in Motodom straight away. So be very careful with your self-serve attitude. So yeah, focus on the infrastructure. Make sure you select the tech stack at the right point in time and don't over-optimize it. Don't forget about data modeling. It's really important. Design it upfront before you, you start committing code. And be very careful with self-serve. Those are my uh, three opinionated uh, takes on how to produce value as a data team, Harry. I love them. I love them, I think. You know, the first point you made, the marketing teams of these vendors are very good. Don't get suckered into them. Pick what's right for, for your team. The aspects around data modeling, it still surprises me how many people I speak to. You know, they say they're an, an analytics engineer, but they don't understand the different, you know, they don't even know the different modeling philosophies, which, you know, is a shock. So make sure you understand them. They'll set you up for success. And then, yeah, obviously the final point, don't 
overcomplicate your self-service. Again, it links into that trust in the data. Um, so perfect advice there for anyone that's looking to take a, a lead or is leading a team. It's a very easy checklist to focus in on. So yeah. I understand your business. That's the last thing I can say about the mistakes is in the amount of data teams that are primarily motivated by technical problems. Right? They're, 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 it is a big trap to fall into. You're working on technical matters all day long. You're interested in technical matters because you're a data professional, right? But don't forget about the fact that at the end of the day, you're there to serve the business. If you can do it in an Excel sheet, you might want to consider doing it in an Excel sheet rather than a neural network. The world's best BI tool, right? <laughs> mm, absolutely. So, self-serve, right? It's all, it's all there. Please don't do it in Excel sheets, people. Is it? It's a figure of speech. No, well, look, Thomas, it's, it's been great. I think there's been some really valuable advice there. And that really sort of brings us to the end of the pod. So I hope you've had uh, a good time. But before you go, I've got to ask you the quick fire questions, which we ask all of our guests. So the first one, Thomas, is how do you assess a job opportunity in, in your career? And, and how do you know if it's, a, if it's a right move? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So plenty of jobs in data. I think over the last year in a bear market, I think data teams were not, not fully unaffected, but largely unaffected in my experience, or less affected by layoffs than, uh, than other teams. So my assessment is that there will be a lot more job opportunities over the next six to nine months in, in, in data now that the industry is sort of uh, pulling together again. So yeah, you have offers, almost certainly how to know which offer is attractive. First of all, I'm afraid there's still plenty of companies out there that see data as a purely technical role. And those are one-way tickets to filled data team hellscapes in many cases. Not always, but make absolutely sure that when you talk to the hiring manager, when you talk to maybe to the founder in small companies, but that's where you're interviewing, that they understand the value data brings that data is an integral part of their growth strategy and that they don't just see it as a way to get reporting into different layers of the business because that's not sufficient. That's the main tip I would give there. Second tip is know what you're good at, right? Communication is really important, as we discussed, but there's different layers and levels of communication. If you love telling other people about the insights you've uncovered, then analyst jobs are great for you. And if you're currently in an analytics engineering job, you might want to consider sort of moving a bit closer to the business uh, working a bit more on those actual insights and how to apply them to business value. If you are a great technical communicator, which is an incredibly underrated skill, I think, in, in many ways, then I think you, you have everything in place to become a great data engineer. Uh, and, and the best data engineers I know are excellent communicators, can explain even the most complex pipeline and container setups to the analysts in the team that might not have any DevOps or data engineering expertise. So I would I would follow my interest and what I'm best at communicating because again, as we said earlier, the communication parts are very, very important here. Yeah. I think that's perfect advice. I know what you're good at, essentially. So what's your best piece of advice for people in an interview? Uh, yes, well, always uh, that certainly comes down to communication. I think you want to show at any level that you're interviewing that you're not just motivated by technology and tools, but that you're motivated by actually solving business problems. Now, we work mostly with startups and scale-ups, and I've worked inside of startups and scale-ups for my entire professional career. So this advice might be less suited to people wanting to interview at bigger companies that have probably more formal skills assessment frameworks and so on and so on. But for small companies, if you want to make an impact, be the data person that can explain very clearly what it is that they do and can explain what business value that they generate. And that means that you should probably talk about 
projects you've run in the past and talk about them not in terms of the exciting new technologies that, you, that you've deployed during those projects, even if it was uh, a large language model, I'm afraid, but that you talk about what business problem did you help solve and what impact did it have on the business. Talk about the lifetime value analysis that you quickly helped the marketing team with so they knew exactly what campaigns were generating what amount of future revenue. Talk about the churn analysis that you helped facilitate as an analytics engineer so that your customer success team could reach out to customers that were likely to churn because you knew you had, you found some correlation between a particular app uses patterns and people's ability or people's likelihood to stop the conversions over the next couple of weeks. That's the sort of stuff I talk about because that will set you apart from the competition. It will make very clear that you care about working within a small company or in a small growing company because you're not just interested in becoming a better technical person, you're interested in moving the company forward. It relates back to, to the ROI. What was Always the ROI? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Finally, Thomas, if you could recommend one resource to the audience to help them upskill, what would it be? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I'm going to say two, two things. First of all, just to be a bit boring, I'm going to talk about business value again. And I think that if you are a data professional and you're not read into the sort of current events, economic news, economic podcasts, and so on and so on, please consider doing that. Get a subscription to The Economist. Listen to a bunch of the excellent money and economics podcasts that, that are around. It will really enrich your ability to talk about business, and it will enrich your ability to understand what challenges your business is, uh, is facing. In terms of technical resources, go back to the basics. Honestly, I think in data, we have a bit of a tendency to reinvent the wheel, I'm, I'm afraid. A lot of the technical issues, or even the application to business issues that we talked about today, they were solved 30, 40 years ago in engineering, in software engineering. So for instance, domain entity modeling, building good data model designs, that's early 1990s, end of the 80s, early 90s, information modeling. Read those books if you want to, because they're really interesting and they talk about the exact problems that you'll face on a day-to-day basis. Also, don't forget about the classic high-quality business books. I think the, uh, there's a book called The Mythical Man Month, which goes back to adding more data engineers to an already delayed data team is going to make, make it even later. They you know, always love the essays in that book because they speak exactly to how engineering culture, including data engineering and analytics engineering culture, can, uh, can go wrong quite quickly. So yeah, economics, podcasts, uh, material, and don't forget about the classics. Yeah, I think that's great advice. You know, why try and fix a problem that's already been solved? Well, look, Thomas, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, having you on. And, and yeah, I think there's some key lessons there for people to take on their journeys and to help turn their organizations from ticket machines to, to revenue generators. So, so thank you ever so much for your time. No, it's been my, my, absolute, my absolute pleasure. Happy to continue this, this conversation at any point that anybody ever wants. Uh, and I will not stop posting on LinkedIn about this either. No, please do not. So yeah, if you uh, found uh, the talk interesting today, please reach out to, to Thomas. If you've got any questions, he'd be more than happy to answer and help out. So I'll put a link to his LinkedIn in the, the, the notes for the show. But thanks everyone for joining us. And, and thank you, Thomas. We'll see you all next week. Thank you, Harry. It was a pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I really hope you've learned something. I know I have. The Stack Podcast aims to share real journeys and lessons that empower you and the entire community. Together, we aim to unlock new perspectives and overcome challenges in the ever-evolving landscape of modern data. Today's episode was brought to you by Cognify, the recruitment partner for modern data teams. If you've enjoyed today's episode, 
hit that follow button to stay updated with our latest releases. More importantly, if you believe this episode could benefit someone you know, please share it with them. We're always on the lookout for new guests who have inspiring stories and valuable lessons to share with our community. If you or someone you know fits that bill, please don't hesitate to reach out. I've been Harry Gollop from Cognify, your host and guide on this data-driven journey. Until next time, over and out. Hold up. 